In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Tonight's gospel reminds me of um, a saying that I heard a lot and didn't think was terribly true until recently, and and that is, blink and before you know it, they're teenagers. Five days ago, we were talking about Jesus as an infant, and here on the first Sunday of Christmas, we're given the opportunity to think about Jesus as a 12-year-old. Again, it does feel like that when you parent sometimes. You look down, you look up, and your kids have grown up. But this is one of those opportunities here in your seat to reflect upon uh, one of the only, I think actually the only text, biblical text at least, that says anything about Jesus between his earliest years and the beginning of his public ministry. So perhaps it's appropriate that we get to reflect on it a bit this evening. And as I was looking at it and thinking about it this week, I, I noticed two things about it. A tension, if you will, and that tension is there between loyalty to things of this earth, for example, family, and not an or, it doesn't have to be loyalty to a family, for example, or something else, but loyalty to things of this earth, for example, family, and loyalty to our Heavenly Father, right? Because Jesus is navigating this space as a teenager, or preteen, I guess, uh, as a 12-year-old. He's navigating that space, understanding what he was sent to earth to do, and also navigating that tension of being a faithful 12-year-old to his parents who are dutifully raising him. Now, we've just come out of the Christmas, well, we're not out of it yet, but we've just come past the, the day of the year when perhaps other than Thanksgiving, nothing is prized as much as family, right? We live on the opposite side of the country, as you know, from our family. And so when people say, are you going home? And we say no, if they don't know us, if they, if they don't know us well at all, they look at us like, what's, what's wrong? <laughs> you know, like, do you not get along with your family? Like, no, we mostly get along with our family perfectly fine. Well, but you don't go to visit them? And no. Oh, well, that's right. You're a priest, so you probably have obligations. Well, I, well, I do, but that's not exactly the reason I, I don't go home. I, I say we, we, we don't go home because we've chosen as a family of four to celebrate the Christmas season a particular way. Not that our families were against celebrating Christmas in those particular ways, but we decided after 2005 that we were going to establish our own customs and own ways of celebrating Christmas. But, you know, you you get that look, right? Because, well, it's family. How could you not be with family? And, of course, I, I was with family, right? My immediate family. But, but you know this sentiment. And I, I won't tell you where I pastor, but let me use another example. Um, I, I was pastoring at another church, not in this area before. And at a certain time of the year, parents would literally come up to me as the youth pastor and say, okay, we'll see you in the spring. This might give away a little bit. Well, I've lived in two cold places, so maybe this won't completely give it away. But a, a certain season that involved ice skates was underway and, and kids played this sport. And so like parents would literally come up to me and basically say, we'll see you in a number of months because, you know, it's hockey season. We're going to have games on Sundays. Okay. And then sometimes they would notice a bit of my startled look and interpret it not just as the fact that I wasn't from there and didn't understand ice hockey culture, but they would 
kind of think like, well, you, you know, we've just decided as a family. Right? And I think that was their way of assuming that I would hear, oh, it's family. That, you know, oh, I understand why you won't now be at church for some number of months. Another family, perhaps in the same place, perhaps in another place, came up to me once and said, oh, the girls won't be at youth group for the next few months. We've decided as a family to get involved in this local thing. Now, the thing they wanted to get involved with, there was nothing wrong with that, but they were clearly making a decision not to be involved in the church in a particular way, but the, the subtle but yet true justification there was, well, family. And, and I was talking to someone here in the parish just a few days ago about this, and, 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 and this text seems appropriate because it makes us think about this tension, again, between things of the earth and in the example of Luke 2, it is Jesus's earthly family. And at least in our Christian subculture, family is prized perhaps above everything. I heard a, I heard a pastor once erroneously say that the first institution God created was the family. And in my mind, I said, certainly he's read Ephesians 1, and he would know it's the church, not the family, because before the foundations of the world, right? But I digress. The point is, is to say that, like, no, the family, in fact, isn't God's first institution and therefore elevated to such a stature that it can become the go-to excuse for neglecting other institutions of God's creation, for example, the church. So Jesus had to navigate this. They, they go to Jerusalem, as is their custom. Mary and Joseph are good, observant Jews, raising their son also to be a good, observant Jew. They've gone up for the Feast of the Passover. They're now headed home. There's a group of them. You know, Jesus is 12. They're raising their boy to be independent, so they don't want to sit on him. Plus, he's, you know, hitting those teenage years, so he's probably a little grumpy. And so they, they're like, you know, he's, he's here somewhere. Jesus just needs to be Jesus. So let's, he's in the group somewhere. And they, they go a good day out and then realize, actually, Jesus is more of the kind of preteen than they thought. He's actually not in the group. So they go back into Jerusalem. And, of course, they didn't find Jesus doing any nefarious thing that we would expect someone his age would be doing these days, but instead he's, he's there teaching in the temple as a 12-year-old, right? uh, of, of course, as, as overachieving young boys are wont to do. And so he's, he's sitting there in the temple, and he's sitting among the teachers, and they're asking him questions, and he's answering them, and vice versa, and, and his parents see him, and they're astonished. They're absolutely surprised. I mean, this is not where we would have expected Jesus to, to go. I mean, I almost think in today's way of thinking, like, after checking the toy section of the local store, right, after, after checking the park where all the kids escape park or something like that, they're like, well, I guess we could go into the temple. I don't know why you would be there. And sure enough, not only is he in the temple, but he's the center of attention in the temple. And Mary says to him, why have you treated us this way? That's a good question. It's one I've actually posed to my kids already in life. You know, why, why are you treating your mother and I this way? We've been searching for you in this case, and we've been in great distress, Mary says. They're concerned about their son. Where is he? Can you imagine that day trip back into Jerusalem wondering what has happened to our son? Like, out of everything we went through 12 years ago, the miraculous signs, the messages, the fulfillment of prophecy, certainly he's got to be okay, right, Joseph? Certainly he's not in trouble, right, Mary? And they finally find him, and why have you done this to us? We are in great distress. And Jesus, if and it wasn't for Jesus, this would be such a smart, elecky thing to say. Oh, were you looking for me? 
<laughs> right? I mean, like, wouldn't that be from anyone other than the incarnate Son of God? That would be the wrong thing to say to your parents who just found you. Oh, why? Were you, were you looking for me? <laughs> Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Now, fortunately, Mary and Joseph know exactly who Jesus is. They, they know who his father is. They know he's not just being, uh, you know, sharp with them or disrespectful. But in fact, he's saying, like, so there's this tension. I think what he's saying is there's this tension, mom, dad, and that is, is that, yes, I, there's a sense where I should have left with you. The Passover celebration was over. I, I needed to go home with you to be the good child that I am. But I also have to be about my father's business, right? So there's that tension. And again, it's not an or. I have to do one or the other. It's just he needs to be both loyal to the things of this earth, his family, while also being loyal to the call that he has upon his life given to him, in this case, by his father. And then Jesus, they, under, they come to understand, and he does, in fact, go home with them. And Luke is quick to tell us that he was submissive to them. I think Luke wants us to understand that Jesus isn't just being like the preteen jerk or something like that. No, he was submissive to them. And Mary treasures all these things in her heart, and then Jesus continues to increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and humans. So the question I think we need to ask ourselves in light of this text is, how do we increase, to use that language? How do we increase so that there's a proper balance between these two, right? Loyalty to the things of this earth, our job, our families, our, our vocational callings, the commitments that we make, good commitments that we make, and loyalty to our Heavenly Father. How do we grow in wisdom, stature, and favor, or perhaps more accurately translated, the word favor there is the word charis. It means grace. How do we grow in wisdom and stature and grace with God and man so that we can understand how to navigate this tension that we have in our lives too? Because I feel this tension. Do you feel this tension in your life? I feel this tension. I, I feel the obligation to be loyal to God the Father through my disciplines and my growth in virtue, but it, it almost always daily and constantly rubs up against all the other commitments that I, I've often made in my life, but many of them connect it to what I think is my vocational calling from God. I just asked Stephen Betsy to be praying for me, not immediately, always, please, but in, in not so much this coming week, but the following week, that last week of our, of our Christmas break, I've Ideally, I need to write about 7,000 words that week to meet a, a publishing deadline. And I've done some research, but, but I mean, 7,000 words in, in five days is, is going to be fun to hit. And it's, it's for Cambridge University Press volume, so it's, it's a little more on the academic side of things. And, but yet I, I can already feel that stress coming, creeping into my life. And I know what will happen that week. I'll be wrestling with the fact that I have time off and I really should be giving myself over to not just pure work in the sense of a, my writing life, but to, to be spending more time with God. I know that's going to happen. It's going to be there. And so I feel this tension, and I don't know if you do, but I certainly do. And so, again, I ask us, how do we balance these things properly? How do we grow like Jesus in wisdom, stature, and grace with God so that we know how to navigate these well? And maybe this isn't what I should say, but I think part of the answer is in the reading from Colossians. And I say maybe the reason I shouldn't do this is because Colossians was not written with this question in mind and then said, here, we have an answer right here. You know, it's not like Paul is saying, 
Oh, good question, Colossians. Jesus wrestled with that once. Let me provide answers. Though I do think the Apostle Paul gives some answers, some ways of framing our response to this question, this tension that, again, I feel, and I'm assuming you feel and probably feel, or at least some of you, I, I hope you do, but it's fine if I'm just preaching to myself. That's okay, too. Paul basically says there's seven things in this short passage from Colossians. There's like seven things that, that we can reflect on and maybe do, if you will, in response to that question. The first one is to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So I'm going to summarize that as simply saying we need to be virtuous people. That no matter what that tension feels like in our life, no matter how it manifests itself and it, as a tension, that we need to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. That no matter what level of busyness and what, no matter what level of tension between these two things uh, arises in our life, we need to keep being people of virtue. And not just exhibiting the ones that perhaps we've already cultivated or received, if you will, but to continue to cultivate those virtues. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and, and, and more. So in the midst of that, we could ask ourselves, in the midst of this tension that I live in, am I being virtuous? Am I growing in virtue? Because if not, I probably should step back to my loyalty to things of this earth and spend a little more time thinking about my loyalty to God and the need to grow in virtue. And then Paul says, bear with one another and forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now, in one sense, that, that verse is probably an extension of the word patience in the verse before, right? So Paul ends that compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Oh, what's patience, Paul? Well, that's bearing with one another and forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now, I know this is actually a pretty good measure for me in my own life and living in this tension is when I notice that I've begun to lack patience with other people. I'm not bearing well with other people. I'm not quick to forgive people. That's usually a sign that the busyness of my life is pressing on me in such a way that I'm actually annoyed with people because I see them as things that are in the way from getting a job done. Some people love when there's a knock on their office door. I want to hide in the corner when there's a knock on my office door. It's going to be someone, they're going to need something. How long is this going to take? There's a reason I'm ensconced in my office. There's a reason I haven't stood up from this desk chair in five hours. Why do I have to do it now? It's terrible. And when I start noticing that, and I've at least grown enough in my Christian life to realize that that's something that happens with me. I don't bear well with others, even if they need something, and something that perhaps only I can provide. And I'm not quick to forgive people. That is definitely a sign that I'm not navigating this balance very well. Paul goes on then to say, put on love. And I think this is the, the culmination in one sense of this text because love becomes in Pauline language, the, not only the greatest of the theological virtues, but a way of thinking and talking about God himself. Right? So yes, I'm to be virtuous. Yes, I'm to, be, to bear with one another, forgive others, but I also have to put on love. And again, these are connected to each other. They're not distinct thing. when I'm not, things. When I'm not bearing with someone, when I'm not forgiving someone, when I'm not being virtuous, I'm failing to put on love. Because if I'm clothing myself in love, right, in that virtue that is God himself, for God is love, according to 1 John, then if I'm not doing that, then how could I expect anything else to be in proper place? 
So putting on love, when that knock comes on my door, why is my first response oftentimes like, oh no, someone who's going to bother me from this task that I have? Not like, great, an opportunity to love on someone. This is why I'm more like a cat than a dog, if you will. Right? To see that as an annoyance, not an opportunity to exercise love, but quite the opposite at times. Not always, but oftentimes. And then Paul goes on to say, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And again, these are not disconnected things. If I'm doing these other things, I will be a person who is at peace. And not peace that rules in our hearts, right? That inner peace, that peace that passes all understanding. Right? I, I, in many ways, I, I don't get stressed out, or at least I, I think I handle stress decently well. N- not always interpersonally, but, but it doesn't often manifest. I don't get sick when I get stressed or those kinds of things. I, I tend to feel the stress a bit and then find ways to navigate through it. But, but this deep inner peace, right, that comes with being loving, forgiving, bearing people, virtuous people. So that peace, who is Christ himself, I need to let him rule in my heart, that at my very depth, I need to be a person who's at peace, that that in this tension, I need to find the space to let the peace of Christ rule in me, so that that tension doesn't eat me alive. I started my PhD with people who I think at the end of the day were just more talented and smarter than I was, but they didn't finish. And I think one of the reasons they didn't finish is they, they couldn't find a way to navigate the, that tension of, of having to be academics, but also just navigating the rest of life at the same time. That need to actually sit there for hours upon hours upon hours a day, living into that calling to get a PhD without being distracted and, and letting all the other things kind of get in the way, if you will. And so when we let that peace of Christ rule in our hearts, we're able to not feel that tension which can cripple us, but instead we can be peaceful people who can step back and recognize the way in which the one might be uh, overpowering the other, the way that our vocations and our work and our commitments to family and friends and job is pushing out our loyalty to God. Paul says we need to be thankful that's something that I'm still growing in, but I've, I've learned when I am feeling overwhelmed and busy to be thankful to be overwhelmed and busy. Now, I've confessed to you before, I, I don't like being bored. I, I, don't, I do nothing well, right? I don't like to sit and do nothing. It kills me, right? So I like to be busy. I like to be doing things. And not always just intellectual work, but I like to work with my hands. I like to, to do things. And and I've learned that when I do feel stressed, when I feel overwhelmed, that I, I've t- been able to take steps back and say, but this is a good thing, right? God has called me to this. I get to do the thing that God has called me to do, and I should be thankful for these opportunities. I used to love to travel. I don't like to travel much anymore. So three or four days before any trip these, these days, I start already thinking like, oh, do I really have to go? I don't want to go. So on Wednesday, Brennan and I are flying down to Dallas together. I'm doing a symposium there that I was invited to, and I'm taking Brennan along as kind of a senior trip for him, and we're going to stay a couple of extra days and do some things together, uh, visit a couple of my friends at a monastery there, and hopefully just have a good time. But, you know, I booked a 6 a.m. flight because we have to be in Dallas by 1 o'clock at, at this colloquium, and, and already I think, like, oh, what was I thinking, like, 
That's good. Oh, that's going to be so early. Oh, I hate to travel. Why am I doing this? And then I think like, my goodness, you got invited to go do this thing because of the work you've done. You need to be thankful for these opportunities and to be thankful for, to spend the time with Brendan. Now, fortunately, Brendan is about as grumpy as I am in the morning, so I know he won't be chatting at me, so it'll make the 6 a.m. flight a lot better. But once we both wake up, boy, it's going to be great, and we're going to have a good time. Sixth thing he, Paul says is that the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So again, in the midst of these tensions, do we, are we virtuous people? Do we abide well with others? Do we forgive others quickly? Do we put on love? Do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Are we thankful people? Do we let the word of Christ dwell in, a, in us richly? Right? And I think here, this is the word of Scripture, but also just the person of Christ too. Do we, do we just let the good news of the gospel just be in us and wash over us and, and help us navigate these tensions? And then finally, I think Paul, in kind of this all-encompassing statement, just concludes by saying, well, my paraphrase, at the end of the day, quote, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I think that this is the key in part to this tension. This tension between loyalty to the things of the earth and loyalty to our Heavenly Father is, are we doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? Do I I say yes to opportunities in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I think of my job as a gift from him and do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or am I doing it for my own self? Am I doing it because I want people to think highly of me or that I want my name to be out there, if you will? What's my motivation for doing what I do? What's my motivation for parenting a certain way, for committing to certain things, even good things? I think Paul says at the end of the day, a litmus test will be, are you doing it? in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because if not, I would probably think we should quit doing it. Now, some things we have to do, right? Something breaks, we have to fix it, even if we don't want to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. But that's not the case with everything in our life. We control so much that is in our life. And do we do those things in the name of the Lord Jesus? And again, if not, maybe we should stop doing it. So we should submit ourselves to the demands of the Christian message and the gospel and let it become so deeply implanted within us that it controls us so that, that we do everything according to the gospel in Jesus, that we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus, again, when his parents found him, he wasn't being the bratty teenager or preteen. He wasn't being snarky when he said, oh, were you looking for me? I don't know. In some sense, was Jesus surprised that his parents came back for him? Right? Did he, did he maybe think that they, they had really kind of understood this, this incarnate son of God, so they were a little more hands-off with him? Right? So he wasn't, he wasn't being snarky. He was saying, wow, you, you were looking for me. And they were like, of course we were looking for you. Why would you not have told us you had to stay back? Why would you let us leave? And, and again, as they reconciled, as they were brought back together as a family, as they navigated this loyalty to things of the earth and loyalty to God, God the Father, and in Jesus's case, the mission that he has, we're just again reminded that as, as Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God, that what he did in part was to continue to be submissive to his parents. 
So let us think in terms of navigating our lives, not as either ors, but that we are committed in both of these realms to submit to God primarily to navigate these things well, to think of the ways that perhaps our reading from Colossians can help us frame a set of questions to see if we're doing that well. And it's probably, it's likely that we may answer in the negative and say, no, I'm not doing all these things well. I wouldn't be surprised if any of us had it figured out. And I'm not convinced these tensions are ever going to go away. As a 47-year-old, I'm not nearly as naive as I used to be about how things will get better, right? They just get complicated in different ways or something like that. But so as I continue to grow in wisdom and stature and grace with God and, and others to navigate these things, let us all pray for ourselves on that journey. And let us do it again by being submissive, first and foremost, to God, asking him to give us the wisdom that we need to be loyal to the things of this earth and loyal to God loyal to God the Father. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.